This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Gwynn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And since it's Pride Month, and we have been going with a Pride Month theme on all of our episodes this week, of which this is the second, so I'm not sure why I'm talking about them as if there are 50 <laughs> of the them, because they're not. This, this is, is the, the no, third. Well, Right, because you're counting the um, True Crime TV Club we did about the murder of Jesse Valencia, which was episode 28, I believe. One of it was my... June. It yeah, was June, it was... so it's Pride yeah. Month. It's yeah, all Pride absolutely. Month, so this is the third of the darkest, most <laughs> unhappiest Pride Month observation ever. I have to say that's correct. It's even darker. And today gets really and, takes. If you thought it was dark before, today takes a really dark turn. And I, I feel like we are going. We the, the episode previous to this, which was not technically an installment of True Crime TV Club, which this is today, and we'll get into what that means in a second. Um, I feel like between that exploration of a very high profile 1990s anti-gay hate crime. And this one, which is, spoiler alert, what we're about to get into, but the title of the episode we're going to talk about sort of gives it away. Um, We're showing people what it was like for me as a young gay man. Like, this was the climate that I was coming out into in 1996, which is when I came out, the summer of 1996. Um, uh, And so, yes, it is an odd way to celebrate Pride Month, but perhaps we can uh, adopt a look-how-far-we've-come attitude towards some of this. Certainly not as bad if we had gone further back in time to the 60s or the 50s. This is the atmosphere in which I published Say Uncle. Right. Your first novel, Say Uncle, was published Came out in the midst. It was 1994. So, like, in the midst of the last few episodes, the last this one and the previous episode, that's when Say Uncle came out. So, yeah, I actually said to my family at the time... I apologized. I said, I have no idea how this will play because it was a, it was a time. It's a book about a gay man raising a child. And it was a time when gay people were having their own actual natural children taken away from them in court. And people were okay with that. Not because they were bad parents, but because they were gay. There is a case that was more recent. I would say the early aughts, of uh, lesbian parents having their child taken away from them. And I think there were foster parents taken away, given back to the birth parents, and the child was murdered. The child was killed. So uh, another version of what you're describing. Homophobia is seen as a valid modus operandi for various institutions of incredible power and influence over people's lives. Your hometown newspaper in the promo- at that time when your book came out, what was the headline that said get, get local author is now gay and has gay book and come to I think gay it was signing. gay author returns or something like that it was like yeah. it was I didn't care but it was like okay I'd never really been in the closet but I figured well this will clear it up if there was any doubt in anyone's mind and I did the signing um in little old Columbia South Carolina my first well no I actually did a signing here at um Oh, what was it called? Different light before I went. Mm-hmm. And then, but there was a big kickoff for the book, uh, the book tour and the signing in little old Columbia, South Carolina. And I did not know if there were going to be protesters or if it was going to be unpleasant or I had no idea. And to their credit, um, people stood in the rain for up to an hour um, to get there to buy a book and get it signed. It was really, wow. it was a yeah. tribute. It was the, the the lesson for me was if you give people the chance to support you, they will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the last thing I expected. And it was, 
it could not have been more um, overwhelmingly positive. I was, I was really touched. I'm sure there were people in town who had hard feelings about it, but they kept them to themselves. How much do you think uh, at the, the role of that newspaper headline played in that? Like, how much do you think the newspaper sort of not necessarily supporting you, but covering you in a balanced way as a gay author gave people permission to show up and, and lean into their best selves, if you were? Well, I mean, right. I wasn't unknown. You know, I had mm-hmm. been in the community before I was living, had lived in California for a while by that point, but I had lived there before for a good while. I'd been on television there, worked on the local NBC affiliate there, uh, had a column. I'd been on stage a bunch, you know, that people were not unaware of who I was. So I was seen the, the newspaper column was more like, um, hometown boy makes good and comes back to celebrate with us. Right. Come join us. And they did. You know, so it was more like the newspaper was an invitation rather than um, an apology. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. it did not present it as though it was somehow some strange thing about me. It was just that was the nature of the book and who I was and, you know, out and proud author comes home. Like they didn't say that because I don't think people said that yet. But Mm -hmm. it was it was not presented the interesting thing about the article was not the fact that I was gay. Right. Like it was about that I was getting published, that there was a movie deal that, you know, like all of those things were the case by that point. Um, and that was a much bigger deal than, um, than me being gay. Yeah. That is a really, I can't imagine there was a lot of doubt about it before I left. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It was not that like a, that is an inspiring, surprised. uplifting story. And unfortunately, the one we're going to tell today is not. <laughs> so I should uh, tell people that, again, this is an installment of a special series we do here called Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. It is never a requirement that you watch the episode of True Crime Television we will be discussing. But if you would like to, we're talking about an episode of the show, The 1990s, The Deadliest Decade. The title of the episode is Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and it is season one, episode eight of the 1990s, and it covers a murder in the military. Okay, so we are going to take you back to January of 1991 and introduce you, as the episode of television we're discussing does, to a very uh, handsome and popular young Navy shipsman, I believe they're called. His name is Alan Schindler. And he is assigned as a radio man to one of the most prestigious ships in the Navy fleet, and that ship is the USS Midway. Uh, That same month that Alan receives his um, assignment, President Bush, the first one, declares war on Iraq, the first war on Iraq that the United States declared, the one that was much shorter. There was actually some reason for us to be there. (laughs) The Saddam Hussein, who was in power at the time, for those of you who don't know, had staged an invasion of Kuwait that was completely unjustified. Uh, We became involved probably because of the amount of oil in the area and the other yes, complexities absolutely. of the Yes, No, East not region. probably. I always <laughs> used to say of Eastern Europe, if they wanted our help, they should get out and start drilling for oil. <laughs> anyway, this was the political climate of the 1990s, which we both remember quite well. During the Iraq War, the Midway serves as a flagship for all of the naval resources that are used during what was, in fact, a very brief war. Uh, but one that was considered uh, a victory for us and a victory for Kuwait, at least, and that we helped repel the invasion of Iraq in this instance. Um, This is a glorious time in young Alan Schindler's life. He has a wonderful time on board the Midway. Uh, He routinely calls home. And war is such a treat. I know. Well, this war, I think, was... uh, Less and less traumatic for the people that were involved in it. It was such a brief, compared to what came after, it was, anyway, I I don't want to make it an episode about the Iraq War. The point is that that, that Alan is enjoying himself. He feels a sense of purpose. He was very proud to have served on the Midway during that particular conflict. Yeah. So proud, in fact, he gets a tattoo of the Midway um, on his body, which is where you get tattoos. (laughs) 
Usually, I supposed to on his Volkswagen. <laughs> on his Volkswagen. Um, after eleven months on the Midway, he is transferred to the USS Bellow Wood. Uh, this has a reputation for being a much less orderly ship. It's a party ship. <laughs> party. Um, it has a reputation for getting into fights with the crews from other ships. And I don't know if that's a plan. Be thing. true to your ship. <laughs> I like the whole call and response thing we're doing today. Right. Installment of true crime TV club. Um, Alan does not like it. And he is regularly calling his mother, Dorothy, who is a widow. His father passed away some time before. Dorothy lives in Chicago. He calls her home on a regular basis for what sounds like pretty brief phone calls, like 10 minutes from the ship's phone center. As he has right along. He was doing it on the Midway as well. He stayed in constant contact with his mom all throughout his service. Um, the Bella Wood in October 27th, 1992 is docked in Sasebo, Japan, which apparently is, is it docks there very frequently. Um, uh, Dorothy gets her regular call from Alan and he says uh, he's going to be home soon, but he doesn't say why. And she thinks this is a little strange because she knows that his tour is not up yet. But he's like, yeah, no, I'm, go- I'm going to be coming home. It's, you know, it's fine. And, you know, and then he was leaving the, the Navy. Does, yeah, does he tell her he's leaving the Navy at this yes. point? Okay. Yeah, yeah, he says that he's coming home and that he's leaving the Navy. He's, he's talked with his lawyer about it, and he is um, he is going to be leaving the Navy and coming home. So he'll be there for Christmas and looking forward to seeing her. And, and you know. she's, she kind of wants some more information. She's like, that seems a little abrupt, but he doesn't give it to her. And um, people not giving Dorothy information is going to become a leitmotif, if you will, of this episode of True Crime TV Club. October 28th. This is the next day, 1992. A sailor knocks on Dorothy's door in Chicago. And she says in her interview, you know, if you're a Navy family, when a sailor in uniform knocks on your door at home, it's never good news. And it is not. The sailor tells her that Alan has been killed and he won't provide any details. He does, however, leave her with a business card that has a phone number on it she can call of a higher-ranking officer. She does this for three days, and the higher-ranking officer will not give her any details about I don't even think they speak to her. I don't think they ever return her call. Well, I think that's what's happened. I'm looking over my notes. I think she calls for three days and doesn't get through, and then finally she gets in touch with a higher-ranking officer, and he says... Alan died in a fist fight with two of his shipmates, and that's all he says. He will I don't think he even details. says shipmates. I think he just said he died in a fist fight. Oh, yeah? Okay. Because the revelation that it was shipmates is actually a big deal later on. Right. Because the next day, the Navy puts out a press release um, that says Alan's murder was a beating death with no known racial or drug overtones. <laughs> so like okay like who asked that question that it had racial right? or drug overtones it's a very strange statement it gets the attention of a reporter named rick rogers who works for i believe it's called uh, pacific stars and stripes magazine uh, they purport to be an independent magazine that covers affairs having to do with the navy uh, he thinks this press release is really really odd Uh, And he begins trying to follow up on it and starts to hit a similar brick wall to what Dorothy hit in those days after she was told of Alan's murder. As a side note, six days after this, Bill Clinton is elected president and 12 years of Republican control of the White House come to an end. That was, of course, the control that started with Ronald Reagan and continued with one term of the first Elder Bush. And one of the things that Bill Clinton ran on when was the promise that he would lift the ban on gays in the military. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. November 7th, 1992, Alan Schindler's body is returned home to his mother in Chicago with an instruction that his mother is not to open the coffin. Oh, my God. She refuses. She opens the coffin and she Huge discovers... Mistake. Alan's face is completely destroyed. There is a shoe print embedded in it, literally in his face. And she realizes this was not a fist fight. This was a murder. 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. So, as with many of the episodes that we discuss, this one is sort of constructed in layers. The first section of the episode, we go through um, how Alan's mother experienced the events around his death. And now we once more go back in time to October 27th, which is a few days before his body uh, returned to Chicago. And we meet a young Naval, Navy shipsman named Jonathan White. Uh, he walks into the Naval Investigative Services offices at the Sasebo Naval Base. His hands are covered in blood, and he says that he was witness to a horrible crime. Oh, God. He was visiting an area of Sasebo called Sailor Town, which has nightclubs and karaoke bars that cater to the American crews, possibly more than the American crews, but the sailors who are routinely docking. Right. Uh, he decides on his walk home to use a public bathroom. Now, it's, it's a rather nice public bathroom, and the design of it actually becomes important. It's got walls of glass blocks kind of in the corners of it, in the exterior walls. Um, he... Uh, sees a group of guys as he's approaching he sees through this wall of glass box these wrestling kind of shadows inside well, he heard them first he heard grunting and he heard something he actually thought maybe people were having sex right um but what he sees is a shadow of a man jumping up and down over and over again on another guy uh he runs and he gets shore patrol by the time they get there, the perpetrators are gone, but they find a body in the bathroom, and the face is just completely destroyed. The jaw is broken. He describes the eyeballs as being outside of their sockets on a different part of his face. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, but Jonathan sees the tattoo of the Midway and realizes this is Alan Schindler, the man who had the amazing experience on the Midway and was so proud of it. Right, he, he knows it. it's his shipmate. Yeah, that's how they identify the body. Jonathan's able to give a description of what the assailants were wearing to the shore patrol, and they immediately scour Sailor Town in search of people matching that description. The local police arrive, and they process the crime scene in some detail. Jonathan is taken back to the ship, and is taken to an executive officer where he says, and this is where I got a little confused. The executive officer interviewed Jonathan, but a captain was present in the room watching them. And Jonathan thought that was sort of unsettling and odd. Or was the captain Ominous, the executive yes. officer? Okay, so I got it right. The captain was just sitting there. Um and they say to Jonathan, you are not allowed to tell anyone what you saw because in his direct quote is, we don't want what happened to that guy to happen to you. So Jonathan. Nothing threatening about that. Well, and on top of that, they're restricting Jonathan to the ship, which scares the crap out of him because he's pretty sure that the killers were, were probably sailors as well. And they might be on the ship with him. And then they give him the task of cleaning out Alan Schindler's locker of his personal belongings, which they are going to uh, presumably send home to his family. So at this point, the special goes back to that reporter, Rick Rogers, who was intrigued by the vague press release the Navy put out about um, Alan Schindler's death right. during a fight, which had nothing to do with drugs or race, which was like, OK, uh, Rick is awaiting something called an Article 32, which is a court-martial hearing, and it's, it's where you would presumably find out the details of the crime, the motivations, the who, and the when. And so he continues to call the Navy asking when the Article 32 is going to take place. This is simultaneous to Dorothy calling the Navy with similar requests, and her calls are going unanswered as well. But they're having the audacity, I would say, to say, don't talk to the press. We're not going to tell you anything. We're not going to tell you when this court martial is going to happen, but don't talk to the, whatever you do, don't talk to the press, which, you know, doesn't sound like the best way to 
manage a, a grieving mother. So Rick, particularly this one, because after she sees what condition her sons comes back in, she launches into a letter writing campaign to senators, congressmen, and even the president of the United States, making it clear in no uncertain terms that she wants to know what the hell is going on and why the Navy is not telling her. Exactly. And Rick, the reporter, who has not yet made contact with Dorothy, is on the case. And he stays on it, and he discovers that an Article 32 relating to Allen's murder did in fact take place, but because of what the Navy describes as a bureaucratic error, yeah, right, it took place entirely in secret and without them notifying anyone. And this was for a Navy shipsman named Charles Bins, who is described as being one of the sailors connected to the murder. There was no public participation. Reporters were not allowed into the hearing. And so nobody has any idea what happened at this trial. Other than he only got sentenced to a year. And around this time, Dorothy, it turns out, is not the only one engaged in a letter writing campaign. Some of Alan's friends who were local to Sasebo, Japan, who are described as having worked in the clubs or being local entertainers, they start firing off letters to every newspaper and TV outlet that they can. And they say Alan was in the process of being dismissed from the Navy for being gay and that his murder was a gay bashing. This letter reaches Rick Rogers who sees this as his, you know, he's finally got to contact Dorothy. You know, before this, he didn't have much information. worth noting, despite the fact that they sent it to all these other news outlets, the only one who responds to it is Rick Rogers at the Stars and Stripes. Right. So, (laughs) on December 13th, 1992, they get word that Charles Vins who is the sailor that they had the previous secret no reporters allowed court-martial for, has received a paltry one-year sentence for testifying in exchange for testifying against another sailor, his friend, a man named Terry Helvey. Helvey has not yet been charged with anything, but he's being held in the brig, and this entire process is taking place in secret. In January 1993, this is showing you how long this is dragging on with Dorothy getting almost no information about what what the Navy even believes happened to her son. Um, January 1993, she's waiting for Helvey to be formally charged, and she receives a shipment from the Navy. As we recall, Jonathan cleaned out Alan's locker shortly after he witnessed the murder. This is his materials finally arriving, and it includes Alan's diary. Right. In the diary, Alan describes that for pretty much his entire time on the Bella Wood, he was enduring constant taunts, threats, and anti-gay harassment. Despite not being out of the closet, he was... And reported it again and again to his um, superior officers, and nothing was ever done about it. One month before his murder, this is September 23rd, 1992, while the ship is en route from Hawaii to Japan, he reaches a breaking point. Uh, He asks to see the captain. The request is denied. And so he sends out an unauthorized radio transmission on a secure fleet-wide channel with this call sign. I'm going to read it out phonetically. (laughs) The number two, the letter Q, the letter T, the number two, the letter B, the letter S, the letter T, the letter R, the number eight. Too cute to be straight. So basically... He comes out on the ship's radio in response to being completely having his complaints of harassment completely ignored. He's called to the captain's quarters for a proceeding known as a captain's mast, which is a disciplinary hearing. This is pivotal, in my opinion, and maybe you agree. This is similar to something we talked about on our previous episode where a single event in a chain of events leading up to a horrible crime, I think, really casts some culpability on certain individuals involved in the story. The captain denies Allen's request for a private hearing in this matter. And in front of 200 of his shipmates, they basically accuse Allen of being gay for sending out this radio call sign. And they see, and this is just, it opens the floodgates for the harassment that he uh, then begins to endure on the ship. 
it puts him in the sights of a particularly bigoted and rageful uh, fellow crewman named Terry Helvey. He ramps up his harassment of Schindler. Uh, Schindler continues to report it. Nobody does anything. He asks for a transfer. Nobody does anything. So finally, he flat out declares that he is gay. He does it in a way that violates the military's policy on homosexual homosexuals. I, Eric, do you remember? Is this this is prior to the implementation of "Don't Ask, Don't Tell"? Right? We're still we're yes. in the days just before no, "Don't Ask." No, he's don't. just going to he's just going to be um, he's going to get an honorable discharge, but he's going to have to leave his job. Right. He's going to have to give up his career because he's admitting to being gay, which he can't be in the military. It's the only way he can see you know, that he could possibly um, get out of this. I think it's also worth noting that he outranked Helvey. Mm-hmm. Um, and was so that it wasn't even respect for rank. Like, he, ordinarily, if a subordinate was being physically and uh, verbally abusive to you, reporting that would not just be a matter of, like, tittle-tattle. It would be insubordination it would be an actual violation of of the chain of command in the navy and even that's not enough um to warrant any particular action from uh the captain or the xo on this particular on a uh, ship from hell so the phone call that alan made home to his mother at the very beginning of this episode this special he was um, he had basically already initiated this process. He had already begun working with a lawyer. He had already let them know that he was gay. He didn't let her know he was gay. He was not out to her yet. So earlier on, when Rick Rogers contacts Dorothy and says, I've received this letter from old friends of his from Japan who say that this he was in the middle of this process, she has trouble believing it because she just didn't think he was gay. And so it, she's on her own journey with this. But um, back to... Um, the night in question, um, Terry is arraigned on... No, I'm sorry. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. It, it, they, they arrest Terry on the night of the murder. They're able, based on Jonathan's description, to find Terry and Charles and identify them as the men who were in the bathroom. Well, they with must Alan have just Schindler. been covered with blood. I mean, my God, it was a savage attack. Uh, Jay said Jonathan was covered with blood when he went into the Naval Investigative Services office. And presumably right, and he that just was, was trying him. to help. Yeah. Um, God, this is so hideous. Um, so February 9th, 1993, we're now in the, into the following year. Terry is finally arraigned on charges of assault. Now, up until now, Terry has been held secretly in the brig as they try to work out this deal with Charles Vins to turn on him. Uh, he's, he's also being charged with lying under oath. Oh, and murder, by the way. Now, Dorothy at this point has been stonewalled so many times and she's so traumatized by not being told that her son was basically murdered and being told it was just a fistfight gone wrong um, that she doesn't have any faith that the Navy is going to reveal the motivation for the crime. But at this point, after having read Alan's diary, after having made contact with Rick Rogers, she is she's pretty convinced this is an anti-gay hate crime. Yeah, she's uh, coming on board that he was, in fact, gay. Yeah. Um, somewhere around this time, a, a gay activist named Michael Petrellis gets wind of the case. He is also interviewed in the uh, episode that we're discussing. Oh, right. She still, even to him, said she didn't think he was gay. Yeah. Um, didn't she? It was a while before she made that choice. Yeah, and I'm not entirely clear on exactly when Michael Petrellis gets wind of the story, but he basically becomes her... Uh, I don't even know what her companion, her right hand man. He helps her navigate some of this process. I think they end up traveling to Japan together to be as present as they can be for um, the court trials that are finally resulting as the from this murder. April 1993, Charles Vins is released. He has testified against his friend. He is prepared to testify his uh, against his friends. Uh, in the days leading up to the trial, the Navy apparently has a change of heart somewhat and decides that Dorothy should be consulted about matters relating to the prosecution of her son's hideous murder. And so they disclose to her that they are working out a plea deal with Terry Helvey that takes the death penalty off the table. But before they make the offer to Terry, they want to consult her. And in one of those moments that occasionally emerges out of crime specials and brings tears to your eyes, 
Dorothy um, gives in to her higher self and decides that if the death penalty is in play, that will only hurt another mother. And so she does not want to hurt Terry's mother in that way. And she decides to give her blessing to the plea deal, which results in Helvey pleading guilty to a lesser charge, which is murder with intent to bodily harm. May of 1993, he is sentenced uh, there's testimony from the investigating Naval Investigative Services officers. Uh, this will be no- Dorothy's first time finding out what actually happened that night. And if, for those of us watching the special, it's what when we find out as well. Alan went out for a night on the town. He's walking back to the ship across a public park. Uh, he crosses paths with Terry Helvey and Charles Vins. They start following him. Helvey allegedly says to Vins, let's go fuck with him. Uh, they discover uh, Alan in the public bathroom using the urinal. Helvey cold cocks him and then beats him savagely by jumping up and down, as we previously described. The descriptions of his subsequent injuries are not for the squeamish, and so we will not repeat them again here. But suffice it to say that the blows inflicted on Alan Schindler exceeded 20 G's of force. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the homepage, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery app. Yeah, so I think it's worth... Like, the thing that they said, without getting graphic, because they do on this special, so heads up if you're planning to watch, um, they said his injuries were consistent with being in a high-speed car crash. Yes. Like, he was just really, he was literally beaten to a pulp. I, I And I would say, yes, the, 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 the detail, excuse me, I'm having trouble talking about it, that chilled me to the blood was that Immediately after he was arrested, Terry Helvey believed that confessing, he confesses to the murder to NIS, but Uh, he believes that if he confesses that he did it because Alan was gay, that that will exonerate him. I'm like... Back to, right, back to last week's episode, back to this whole time period that somehow that being gay is so terrible that you're off the hook for brutal murder. It gets at the culture of what these men are. Like, I want to hold these men responsible for their actions. But when you're going to have a disciplinary hearing for a guy who sends out a sexually suggestive radio transmission over the ship's line because he's reached a point of desperation because nobody's listening to his complaints of constant harassment, and you're going to invite 200 of his shipmates there to view him as a target, you're going to do that to him? How do you not expect this to be the result? And it's impossible and then for ignore, me. Yeah, the person who should be in prison is the captain. I mean, Jesus. And possibly the XO. Like, yeah. their, their participation, they're ignoring his complaints. They're refusing him a transfer. They're continuing. Like, they are as culpable in this as the guys who actually did the crime. They, they literally, I, I mean, he identified Helvey as an issue. And they didn't, they didn't discipline Helvey even for violation of chain of command. Uh, and is it, uh, do you believe there's any other reason for what apparently what looks in retrospect, like a Navy cover up? was this what they were trying to cover up? Did they feel even then that they had some culpability for mishandling? Of course the they did. Yeah, of course they did. They were covering the whole thing up. Like they didn't want anybody to even think that there were gay people in the military. There was a long period of that. There are no gay people in the military. It was like, that's really kind of naive. 
Oh God, yeah. I I, uh, I wrote a novel called Blind Fall, which predated the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and it was I did a lot of research for it. It was a murder mystery, but it was involving several characters who were gay in the Marines. I uh, and I remember reading a, a pretty lauded um, book about boot camp that was sort of e- e- widely available. And uh, I think there's a direct quote in there from a respected officer of, we'll never have fags in the Marine Corps. And I'm like, girl, <laughs> I've sl- first of all, I've slept with a few. <laughs> um, so you do. They're already there. You just don't know that they're there. You have a very specific denigrating stereotype of what a gay man is stuck in right. your head. And so you've decided since you don't see a, a, a you know, whatever that is. There's walking, no screaming queen in your right. particular unit. God, what these men went there, through. There are no gay people. Yeah, it was, it was like, it was one of the things I remember David Geffen saying in his efforts to provide support and make donations to campaigns to provide support for people gay people serving in the military said i can't imagine why they would want to but i support their right to yeah i you know and like the story that i really would love to know and i don't know if i ever will because he's not with us any longer and maybe his diary revealed some pieces of it is what was so much better about the climate on the midway versus the climate on the uss bellow wood why was he sent from the midway to the Bellow Wood? Um, what was he being punished in some way? I'm not looking to blame him for everything that happened, but it seemed like such a demotion. The characters of the ship seemed so different. Maybe it was just the difference between being in a fully engaged kind of combat situation versus a more idle military experience where you're just sort of hailing at these ports of call. I don't. Well, it know. was a very different ship. I mean, the midway was a big giant. Um aircraft carrier and this was sort of a a service vessel wasn't it that was my impression that it was about providing supplies to ships like the midway so i think it was i don't know they didn't allude to it and it's an interesting question there it may have just been uh you know the standard like you work a lot of different places in the military and it's how you get promoted Mm -hmm. yeah transfer usually equals some kind of promotion. They transfer you to do a higher level job. And so, okay. And you do that well. And some places are probably better than others, but yeah, it was, it was definitely demotion to him. And it was probably just a more homophobic environment, like the sort of environment where that kind I think it's why they made that note at the beginning, that it was a more raucous kind of environment. And the sort of ship that where people got in fights with people from other ships just by virtue of the fact that they were from other ships. Mm-hmm. There was no background of Helvey given really at all. There was this was really very much about the incident itself. Yes, it was. Um, and and w- it was about yeah. the Navy's culpability in in this really happening. I think that was really what this episode was more about than anything else was for me anyway. Also, it was about his mom's realization because she became a big advocate, a big advocate. There was a TV movie made about her experience. I think, I believe it was called any mother's son. Um, she later was, this is, I did a little cheating, a little side research just cause I was so upset by the whole story. <laughs> I needed to sort of know the, see if there was a happier ending for at least some of the players. And she did go on to be a very, uh, beloved gay activist. The Nash international leather association gave her a big award, their Jan Lyon award, which is apparently their <laughs> highest honor. She really became like a member of the LGBT family or the P flag family, at least. So that was that was good. Um, I and she said she said at the in the show, the thing that touched me the most, she said, I wish that the last time he was home, he had been more honest with me because I would never have let him go back. Right. Oh, God. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that's just yeah, it's like, God, um, heartbreaking. Let's talk some about don't ask, don't tell. Right. Because. So Bill Clinton makes this promise. I think he did. He make the promise during the campaign or did he make it immediately after? Okay, no, he was going. He made it in the campaign. And then it was almost immediately It was almost the first thing that happened. Um, And I really it was as it was as angry as I've ever been. I never forgave Colin Powell. 
Mm-hmm. I never forgave him. I always blamed him for Don't Ask, Don't Tell because they stood him down and he let them. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like it was a bad choice. I felt like we would have had um, uh, health care for all if that if he had stood his ground on uh, gay serving openly in the military. He backed down and he did the compromise that was Don't Ask, Don't Tell that became worse than what it was supposed to correct. Yeah, and why do you think that? I mean, I know why. It's, it's true. You're right. I just want you to say why. <laughs> like, it was worse. Yeah, like it was... Because it basically said... It, because it's basically an invitation to find out. Mm-hmm. Like, right. if Don't Ask, Don't Tell doesn't change... The problem was... It was like we were talking about earlier. The problem was the rule that you couldn't serve openly in the military. The problem wasn't that people might find out or that you didn't keep your secret. It was that you weren't allowed to serve openly in the military. So if you have don't ask, don't tell, then if you find out or there are clues or if you want, if you want to get even with somebody, you can say, I think they're gay. And that prompts an investigation. Everything prompts an investigation, which wasn't actually happening Mm-hmm. prior to Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It was people kept it to themselves and, you know, that was it. But the the formal investigations, the witch hunt really began as a result of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, not prior to it. And it could have been, it could have t- allowed a guy like Terry Helvey to basically use the actual institution of the military uh, itself to harass a guy like Alan Schindler rather than just threatening him in the hallways. Terry Helvey could have reported Alan and said, oh, he made a pass at me or he grabbed my ass. And it was creating reams of bureaucratic paperwork for that reason. It was it was a nightmare and it was a nightmare for gay people. It was also a nightmare for administrative and commanding officers who probably didn't want to deal with all that shit at all. Um, I uh, There is a clip in the special of President Clinton um, making the announcement of the what he calls a compromise between, you know, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't call them bigoted assholes, but, you know, I will. Uh, there is also a clip of Democratic uh, Senator Sam Nunn, who I believe might have been the defense secretary or something like that. A Democrat saying open homosexuality is incompatible with military service. Can we talk about what that term used to mean open homosexuality because it's like particularly in this context it's like what do you think needed to be hidden that was going to be so corrosive to the military other than murderous rageful assholes like terry helvey were going to be triggered by the by the knowledge or the idea that one of their fellow service members was gay well for most of my life the policy about homosexuality was Let's not offend the bigots. Mm-hmm. That was really that was really how everything was decided, adjudicated. That's the way the rules were. You can't offend because gay people are not allowed to exist. There, there's something wrong with it. As President Obama himself said, people morally objected to our right to actually exist. Mm-hmm. This. This change is really recent. Really there's recent. any sort of notion that we could, that it would be okay mm-hmm. for anybody to be gay. So any notion that you were gay was the problem itself. Mm-hmm. And people felt free to say anything they wanted to about gay people without any sort of fear of reprisal. Yeah. I, I, for I, I, most of my life. I'm glad you said that because that was the sense that I got. Like, I remember this era so clearly. I was about to graduate high school. I was, I was, I would come out a year later. Like, your book was coming out. Like, this is all so fresh to me. It doesn't feel like ancient history by any stretch. And it does drive home how recent the shifts on LGBT rights have been, how new they are. And it puts me of one of two minds. Like, I, I think for that reason, I was a little pissed to see Hillary Clinton as a presidential candidate dragged over the coals about positions that almost every other Democratic contemporary of hers at the time felt free to hold as well. President Obama was opposed to gay marriage up until about midway through his second term when he finally came out in support of it. Everybody was preaching the separate but equal of civil unions. You know, like this is really new. You know, um, MSNBC commentator Joy Reid, who's a kind of liberal stalwart media personality, had her ass dragged over the coals for 
old blog post that she said she didn't write, but somebody found on the Wayback Machine where she said homosexuality makes people uncomfortable and that's okay. This was acceptable discourse. It really was. This yeah. is what we grew up with as, as gay This men. was what we were being told day in and day out all of our formative years. This was the message. You are not allowed to exist and you being... Um, being who you are causes other people discomfort. And like one of the great things about that um, article in the, in the paper, in the hometown paper about say uncle, um, the gay author returns home article was, I kind of, it was very freeing for me. It was like, there was, I was never in, but Mm -hmm. like I moderated, like, Yes, I might, that's, if yes. there's a group of old ladies sitting at the table next to mine at the restaurant, maybe I wouldn't be as clear, mm-hmm. you know, about something I was talking about, or I might not bring it up at all because, you know, you don't want to make other people uncomfortable. There was always that sort of sense. It didn't even occur to me how self-loathing that was. It was just sort of ingrained. It was just kind Absolutely. of the way that you grew up. I mean, I wasn't in, but I sure as hell wasn't out in high school. I would have wound up like this. Um, I might well have wound up like this uh, This poor um, midshipman did um, in this terrible story. I, I absolutely. And I mean, I, I can't, I cannot express to you. It was why I don't remember if it was on this episode now or if a previous episode where we talked about the Tom Hardy incident where he was so aggressively and bullishly shut down a reporter just for asking him about his previous statements about possibly being bisexual and how disturbing the response to it was as people praising him and lauding him as some sort of paragon of, of decency and privacy because during this time, everything that you're describing, it was like the mechanisms of so-called decency and decorum were used against you. If you talked in a, to a certain amount of detail about being gay, you were violating um, good manners. You know, like it was all the language was coded in this sort of sanctimonious, holier than now. It didn't. It wasn't phrased like religious bigotry when it, when it often was. It was, oh, you're being inappropriately sexual. And the standard of which details of your private life were considered inappropriately sexual often had nothing to do with what took place in the bedroom. It had to do with whether or not you took a male date to dinner. It had to do with what? And that's why I just – I've had moments on social media over the years of people – taking that tone with me. Do you have a sexual problem just because I stated – attraction to an attractive male actor or something. I make a comment that straight people make every day, all the time, every second. And I just go, it's like, it's a, if it's hysterical, it's historical. They say, I just get so berserk with those people because it's so unfair. It's so restrictive and it's so disingenuous. It's just prejudice masquerading as, I don't know, something for the higher good. Something that decent people are talking about. Well, it is left over about. from this period. It is, it is, you know, it's far from done. Yeah. You know, we are still very much living in this same world. We've gotten, we have legal protections now, but there, we are not completely over this time period. You know, where where this sense of being gay is somehow a problem for other people. Like, it it is not. Just the fact that we're allowed to get married to each other has not changed everyone's attitude, though I hope that we're moving towards a more sort of mainstream uh, place for gay people in our culture. Well, I'll tell you this, right, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it feels like the people who freely compare homosexuality to pedophilia and bestiality and incest aren't in the Senate anymore. They're just on Fox News. You know, yeah. like, I mean, I mean, and I think that's the difference there. It's the thing that I have been interested to see what is going to be the consequences of the horrible things that people have felt free to say for so very long about mm-hmm. us that they're now suddenly like couldn't possibly say. I, I, I think it's time for the bigots to go in the closet, you mm-hmm. know, like that's fine with me. Mm-hmm. That that seems like an appropriate kind of place for that sort of hideosity and bad behavior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to just finish out the story of Alan Schindler that we discussed on this episode with one final detail, at the time uh, that Terry Helvey was sent away for life, the Navy refused to release the full report of their investigation. Well, 23 years later, they released it. It was 900 pages long, and it concluded that the Navy absolutely knew about the harassment Alan Schindler was enduring, and they did absolutely nothing to stop it. So 
the truth eventually comes to light, I guess. In, and in, in some ways, through his own mom's efforts and through his tragedy, there was change yeah. um, in the military. And, you know, we are now at a place where people are allowed to serve openly because why not? Like, like the thing that was probably true on the Midway was that people knew and didn't give a shit because who cares? Like the, the hardest part for me to ever understand about homophobia is the notion that who I'm sleeping with in any way matters to you. I don't care who you're sleeping with. I don't spend any time at all thinking about who other people are sleeping with. You know, unless it's like good, good dish. I, <laughs> I had, right. Unless it's some gossip about, ooh, do you know who's sleeping around with so and so and so and so? To that extent, maybe, but like feeling like it would have some impact on my life or my children or my neighborhood or my school, the my military, that's just stupid. I will say this. There's the obvious assumption about men like Terry Helvey, which is that they're closet cases, right? And I think there's a potentially oh, this, a compelling case. absolutely a closet case. But there's, there's another theory, which is that what they're terrified by is the idea that they are going to... Um, be treated by another man as badly as they treat women. What they are are real sexual abusers of women who live in fear that that's going to be turned around on them by a gay man because they can't see gay men as being anything other than the kind of sexual animals that they are in their own private lives. I don't know. That's my theory. The closet case thing works better for me. You're getting to do something that I want to do. I'm, I am denying myself this thing. And so should you. Yes. Yeah. I, I that, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, one final thought uh, is uh, I forgot what my final thought was. I did it to myself. Oh, Usually no. I turn to you and I say, Eric, <laughs> any final thoughts? <laughs> now you know how it feels. The word final thoughts are cursed. They are hereby banned from any mention on TDBS presents. Christopher You're the only Eric. one who ever uses them. Good. So I can stop. I can let it begin with me. I can, I can the... stop anytime I want to. <laughs> I I'm not addicted to final thoughts. So we are continuing our Pride Month episodes. Uh, Our next episode, we have some coming out stories to share from you. You're the star. From our party people on our Facebook page for the Dinner Party Show. You uh, shared some of your coming out stories with us, and we are going to discuss them. And we are also going to discuss our own coming out stories, which I feel like we do all the time because you kind of have to come out every day sometimes. (laughs) Uh, but anyway, that's going to be our next episode. <laughs> Emerge. <laughs> <laughs> and I am speaking of Eric Shawquin rising from the bathtub with his, uh, in a cloud of his favorite perfume or toilet water. Absolutely. Absolutely. Until then, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shawquin. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Come out, come out wherever you are. This is TDPS.